Let's go ahead and open with prayer, and then we'll be in Genesis 2. Lord, we just thank you for this day and the opportunity to sing praises to you, to stand before you and to worship you. And, that. and Lord, we just ask that your Holy Spirit come upon us now as we look at your word and, and that we look to worship you with the preaching of the word. And we thank you in your son's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 4. These are the generations of the heaven and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord made God made the earth and the heavens and every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was not a man to till the ground but there went a, up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground and the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul and God the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground made the Lord grow to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, and a tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden and watered the garden, and from thence it, was, it parted and became un, un, into four heads. The name of the first was Pisan, that is it which co compasses the whole land of Hilvilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is Veladim, try this again, Bedelium, and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river was Giron, and the, sec and the same is that compassed the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hiddekel, that is which goes toward the east into Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress and keep it. We're going to stop there because we've got quite a bit there. A lot of people will tell us that this is a second creation story, but it is a, and kind of say it's in opposition to chapter one, but it is a more detailed creation story. It's not a separate because all he's talking about at this point is day six. And he's just going back and saying, okay, this is what I did on day six. So if you ever hear somebody telling you that there's two creation stories in the Bible, they don't know what they're talking about. It would be just like you're telling somebody that uh, tomorrow, uh, yesterday I went into Kingman. And you leave it at with, with them. But the next person you tell, I went to Kingman and I went to Safeway and I went to Smith's and I went, you know, and I went to all these places. You're not recreating a new story or even another trip to Kingman. You're just giving more detail to that individual. And this is what God is doing here. He's saying... I'm going to give you more detail about day six. And so we look at this and see what, what did God do? It says first, he, he put every plant in, there, in the earth and the herbs and that there was no rain. Now, this is kind of an interesting point. We don't get any mention of rain in the Bible until it rains on Noah and the ark. And it indicates here that God didn't let it rain during this period of time. There was a, you know, we talked about uh, last week where he split the, split the waters and put a firmament be, between the waters. And so the, the sun would have come through the, the thick watery uh, atmosphere and become a greenhouse effect on this, on this planet. It would have been very humid, very steamy, very high oxygen content. And the plants would have been very much uh, fed by, by God and, and growing pretty wild. And what is, 
What does our science tell us? They find these plants and then and they look at them and say they were big tropical plants no matter where they were in the in the world. And they find out that they, you know, when they do find some pieces of them, they find out that they were highly oxygenated. So they go, okay, it fits what God said he did. <laughs> okay, so this is one thing. We talked about this. The scientists have this whether a creationist or evolutionist, have the same exact evidence and facts. It's only their interpretation that's different. And this is something uh, that is very important for us to understand. When people have not been around, they come up with what they think has happened. And if you've done any kind of study with archaeology, it's kind of funny to listen sometimes when they say, well, we found this and this is what it was for. And then later on, they find a book and find out that they weren't even close to what it was was for because they were guessing. This is what it looks like. This is what I would use it for. So obviously, it must have been used for that. So we want to be careful when a scientist comes along and talks about the past that nobody sees. We have to take anything they say with a grain of salt, whether it's the evolutionist or the creationist. We can't say, well, they're, they're, they're absolutely right, even though the creationist can match up to the Bible and say, this is what the, the scriptures say. I will put my word on what they say a lot more than I will the, the evolutionist. So God says he created all these plants. It didn't rain. And it says that he created a garden. The garden that man was going to be dwelling in. How would you like to live, be in a place, that, in a garden that God had personally laid out and, and designed? Now, Man, man can make some pretty good gardens. If you've ever been to some of the really nice gardens in the, in the world or the country, man can make some pretty good gardens. But just imagine what a garden that God lays out <laughs> would look like. You know, and then it says he created man from the dust of the earth and breathed into man life. This is the only creation that seems to have God personally handling. Every place else it says he spoke. He spoke and things happened. Man is so special because we are the height of his creation. We were created according to Ecclesiastes to glorify God. And we are special. Now the world and with evolution want to say that we're not special. Now we're just the current height of evolution. But at some time, somewhere, then the next step of evolution comes along, there'll be something greater than man. But you know, the really sad thing is, is because we're just, in their minds, an evolution, we've got people that say that a sick pig takes precedence over a child. Because there's so many humans, and humans take care of themselves, but nobody takes care of the pig, so a sick pig should be taken care of rather than a child if you come across a sick pig. We've got another group of people saying there's way too many humans on this world and we're destroying the whole world. We need to get rid of the humans. And they say there should only be about a quarter million humans on this place of the earth. Now, I don't know why they would want to kill that many humans and why they think they might be part of the quarter million that got left. <laughs> but they believe that there's too many humans and that humans are the problem. God created us to have dominion on this world, to, to be in charge of this world. We gave it away, or Adam and Eve gave it away. <laughs> but it says that he created man from the dust of the earth and planted him in this garden. <laughs> and then it says that he brought 
the animals by Adam. Now, Adam named all the animals. To me, that's a pretty amazing feat. <laughs> and he named them in less than a day because he didn't get created at the very beginning of the day. He got created somewhere in the day. And he named all the animals. And, you know, I don't know how many of you had trouble, but, you know, trying to name kids when you have your own kids sometimes can be <laughs> difficult. You know, what, what name are we going to stick this poor kid with for the rest of their life? And Adam just had all these animals coming by, and I don't know if God gave him answers on these names or if he just uh, he used so much of his brain, and he goes bear, dog, cat, <laughs> mouse. You know, I don't know that those are the words he used, but you know, he's just rattling off these names with these animals. And all of them, all the land animals are paraded before him, and he names them. I always wondered how smart Adam was. <laughs> Now, it's said that we only use 10% of our brains, and maybe that's because we're de-evolving and using less of our brains each, each generation. But uh, somehow I think the older generations, the, especially what is considered the, the pre-evil, had a lot of brain power. You know, they came up with all kinds of smart things to do, things that we just go to the store and buy. You know, how would you have liked to have to, to, to make the radio, not only make the radio, but make all the parts that went into the radio? You know, I can't imagine doing that. Uh, you know, I couldn't imagine building a car <laughs> and having to build all the parts to the car. So, or even building a house for that matter. <laughs> but man in the old days had to do all of this stuff on his own. And it says that in this garden was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve had no clue what good and evil was, but they seemed to know, because God named that tree, that there had to be something called evil. How much they understood, I don't know. Then it names four rivers that came out of Eden. And you know, it's kind of funny. If you've been around Christianity any length of time, you're going to have all kinds of people trying to tell you where the land of Eden is at. And they'll go, well, you know, you got the Euphrates, you've got what's the, the, the Tiger's River, and, you know, they don't know where the other two rivers would be because none of, there's no other major rivers that come from those two. I want to tell you something, we don't know where the land of Eden is. And it is nowhere near the Middle East probably because the great Noadic flood would have changed the entire con structure of the earth. So people go, well, why do we have a river's Euphrates? Well, why did the settlers, when they first came to America, name everything, all the, the cities and lakes and rivers after the, after the, the lakes and rivers of England and, and Europe? Because those are the words they knew for rivers and lakes and mountains and cities. You know, so they just used those names. And I'm sure when Noah got off the boat with his sons, they go, oh, there's a great big river. It kind of looks like the Euphrates. We're just going to call it the Euphrates. So... Why do we have those names? Because that was what they called them when they got off the ark. So, but we got to think, when you covered the entire world with a flood, it's going to totally wipe out Eden. It's going to totally wipe out those rivers. If, if you go any place where a river, where a flood has really come in, oftentimes the river has changed its course and no longer flows in the same banks if it's a really big flood. So it's not uncommon for this to happen, and God flooded the entire world. So the whole plain. So I just wanted to bring that out, you know, because I've had people ask me, where's Eden? You know, or I think I know where Eden is. And I'm going, okay, that's good. Be my guest. You go find Eden, and you prove that it's there, and I'll, and I'll believe you.
But there's no way that we can know where it's at. And I just wanted to throw that out as we go in because I've heard lots of Christians argue that we have to know where it is. It has to exist. Well, I believe it was destroyed. Okay. Uh, John Calvin, the founder of Calvinism, he decided that uh, Eden left the physical plane and went into the spiritual plane <laughs> dimension. Uh, it was pretty advanced for somebody in the <laughs> 1600s to come up with that kind of idea, but... Uh, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know if there's even exists. All I know is that the tree of, the, of life is in heaven and will be in the new heaven and new earth when it's created because that's what Revelation tells us. So we look at this and we're going to go on here. And, and God put man in the garden and put him in it to dress and keep it. Um, and the Lord God commanded him saying, Of every tree of the garden you shall eat freely. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat it. You shall surely die. One thing I want you to note is Eve is not here at this point. <laughs> the one who got the command directly from God was Adam. Adam was told, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Directly by God, and he said, the day you eat, you will die. Imagine this, he's talking, he's saying you're going to die, and he's talking to somebody who doesn't know what death is. But it's, it doesn't show here that Adam and, and God had the long conversation, okay, God, what is, what is death? Can you explain this to me? God seems to have been able to communicate with Adam and be able to explain what it is that he wanted him to know without a long dissertation on what it is. Did he speak to him on a spiritual level? Did the words mean more? Did, but I won't even rule out that God and him had a long, long conversation about what death was. <laughs> okay, or at least a conversation. Because one thing we want to be very careful of is just because the Bible says something didn't happen does not mean that it didn't happen. I've had people make up whole doctrines in the Bible on something that the Bible said, didn't, said nothing about. And they'll go, because the Bible didn't say anything about this, this means that. <laughs> and I'm going, wow, that's <laughs> kind of crazy. <laughs> you know, that would be like saying that, uh, uh, let's see, what would be a good example? You know, chloride was a total metropolis because it never said it wasn't. <laughs> you know, at one point, chloride had millions of people. <laughs> well, what makes you think that? Well, it never says it didn't. <laughs> Okay, we laugh at that, but we, I, have had, I have read theologians, I have heard pastors, I have heard Christians come up with all kinds of long-winded things that God has, has either said or not said by what he didn't say in the Bible. You're on very dangerous ground on that. If you're going to say because it didn't say it, you can make the Bible say anything you wanted to say because it didn't say it. Um, uh, this is a very bad place <laughs> to try to go to. It, Adam is named all the animals, and then in verse 18 it says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should, should be alone. I will make him a help met for him. And out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called them, every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all the cattle and the fowl of the air and every beast of the field. But Adam, 
but for Adam, there was not found a help met for him. Adam is alone. And it appears that when God created all the animals, he created two of them. And he brings them to Adam. And Adam gives the names to everything. And you know, I kind of picture Adam getting a little uh, concerned here. He goes, okay, I've got a, a male and female cat. I've got a male and female dog. I've got a male and female eagle. You know, there's two of all these animals coming for, you know, to me. But I haven't seen anybody who's like me. I think God was putting an anticipation in Adam before he brought Eve to him. A big anticipation. Okay, Adam, you've seen all these other animals. They all have a mate. I'm going to bring one for you. And you can picture this, you know, and it says that there was no helpmate. And this idea of being a helpmate, that God brings somebody to help. You know, the world sometimes has all these strange pictures of what a marriage is. You know, they'll go from the extreme of the husband dominating the wife and not being, not, and not being a helper to even this idea that a 50-50 men mentality they have where you both give and take. And I think I've shared this before. I do not believe in compromises and 50-50 because when somebody leaves not being satisfied, yeah, you got part of what you wanted, but you didn't get it all. There's always bad feelings. For God's view of marriage, and if we look into marriage at various places, God says we are to completely give ourselves to our mate. Not, not sit there and expect, not even expect it back. It is just that we are to give. A hundred percent. And if they're doing the same thing, then we get what we want in the first place because they're going to give back to us. And we're not trying to do things so that we get. We're doing it because we love that person and we serve them. When we serve God, it's the same way. Because I love God, I want to serve him. Not because I think I'm going to get something for it. We do, but that should not be our motivation to serve God. Our motivation should be that I love you so much, God, I want to obey you. I want to do what you want me to do. I've been teaching all my life, not because I want to get something from it, but because God says, I want you to share. I want you to share. We have people that are very good at helping people. When they're gifted to help people, it's amazing to watch those people because they're not helping people so they can get something back in return. They're just serving. That is what God has gifted them to do. And we need those kind of people that are just good at serving. That's what they enjoy doing. They love helping people. And God has gifted each one of us. And here he's saying, Adam, I'm, you, it's not good. Now, it doesn't mean that it was bad. It just wasn't right for him to be alone. Everything had a partner except for Adam. And after he's gone, all the animals of the land, he's named them all. In verse 21, and God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead, instead thereof. And the rib which God, the Lord God had taken from man made a woman and brought her unto man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. 
Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. God took the woman from out of man and created her. Second time that he's actually physically handled the creation, man and woman. And you know what? He took it from the side. The church was born from the side of Jesus as well. When Jesus was on the cross, he had the spear thrust up under his rib and blood and water flowed out and God formed the church from that death. Eve and Adam are a picture of Jesus and the, and the church in the future. The power of it, the power of the striking right about the heart. And he took this woman and we read it in the English and it says, Adam said, this is now bone of my bone. And in Hebrew it really says, this at last <laughs> is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You know, there's an excitement. He goes, he recognizes this is somebody like me. This is somebody with a spirit made in the image of God. This is a person just like me. And he had found, you know, God had built this longing all day long, parading all these animals with their pairs. And all of a sudden, he sees Eve. And again, he, she was made perfectly for Adam. So you can picture she was a total beautiful, you know, whatever Adam was going to define as beauty, Eve was that. And he says, finally, at last, at last, here's the one for me. And I don't know how he knew bone of bone, flesh of flesh. Again, we don't know. Did God explain it to him? But, you know, did God say, I've, you know, I've created an operation. I'm taking this, taking your bone and I'm creating something for you. We don't know how he knew, but he knew. How many times do we in our spiritual walk sometimes know things that we don't really know why we know them? We've read enough of the scripture. God's spoken to us. You know, sometimes maybe even when you're witnessing, you start talking about things you don't know, that didn't know you knew anything about as you're, as you're sharing the gospel with these people. Maybe God just put it in his head. This is, this, she came out of you, Adam. She's, she's part of you. Cherish her. Love her. And then he goes, and then he gives the institution of marriage is given right here. He says that, you know, number one, he says that this is woman. In Hebrew, it's the same thing. He's ish and isha. In English, it's man and woman. The, 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 in almost every language, the two words are very similar in their nature to show that they come from each other. And then he, then he pronounces the statement for marriage. Now, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. He's already talking about children in the future <laughs> that they don't have any concept of. And he says that they shall cleave one to another. In Hebrew, this literally means to be glued together or soldered together. And we've talked about this. When God puts two people together in marriage, it's to be forever. And their very souls are joined together. This is one of the reasons why divorce is so painful for people. People will get divorced and they'll, really, they'll think it's going to solve all their problems. <laughs> I have met so many divorced people who are still tied together in emotional ties. 
if there's any kids involved, they're tied together permanently. But even without kids, those, their souls have been knit together and there's problems that they have to deal with. Now, some get over it quicker than others. Some never get over it. I've seen people that have been divorced for 30, 40 years who are still having issues <laughs> with the person they broke up with. And part of it, I think, is the desire because they were knit together. But God says that, they, that we are glued together. You cannot separate something that's glued together or soldered together and have it stay in peace. If anybody's ever done word work, and I love word work, and I don't do very much, but if you get a good wood glue between two pieces of board, and you try to separate those two pieces of board, the glue doesn't break. The wood breaks and rips the wood up so that you can't use it anymore. It's the same thing with our lives and our souls. When we have a divorce, the soul is ripped. It's torn. It may, it may be able to heal itself up over time, but it has been torn and damaged. And it's a very serious thing. And God says, don't do it. Don't do it. And we live in a generation where, I don't remember what, I don't know what the newest odds are, some 50% of people are getting married or are, are divorced. And they say it's just as bad in the church. I actually had one pastor go, well, that's because the church gets married <laughs> in the first place. And there may be some sense in that because outside in the world, a lot of people aren't getting married now because they're not, they're thinking it's not worth it because it might end up in divorce. We're in, or they're thinking we're going to live together and see if it works. And then they get married and get divorced because once they, tie, once they make it official, it seems to not have their problems. But we just want to say God's way. God's way is one time forever. Glued together. And this is why it's important. And we, from this verse, we also understand that it's one man, one woman. Not as the world's trying to tell us that it can be two guys and two girls. Or as they're headed toward. I mean, as soon as they started saying that homosexuality was okay, we started seeing the polygamists come up. Well, if it's okay for homosexuals to get married, why not us? And I've seen the pedophilia coming up. And I even saw an article about a man who wants to marry his dog because homosexuality is okay. Which is exactly what the Christians were saying. As soon as you disconnect marriage from a rule and a law of God, everything goes. And this has been the way it's been through history. Everything will go because we, if, if the one law doesn't stand, then none of, them, none of them stand. So we as Christians need to be able to say, God says this, this is what we're going to stand on. It won't make us very popular with people. Now, we'll be called bigots, homophobic, you know, and every other phobic when, it, when, the, when the other stuff starts to become, come into play. Now, you'll be called a, a polygamophobic or whatever, you know, it's, you know, making up words here. But, you know, you understand what I'm saying is as things get worse, we're going to be just as much attacked as we are for standing up for one man, one woman. When we are standing against fornication as a lifestyle, we, we are called bigots and, and holding God's rules. The world is not going to like us as Christians. And as it gets darker and darker, there's going to be more backlash against us. We need to be ready. We need to know why we believe what we believe and be ready to stand on what we believe. Because if we don't know why we believe it, we won't have a reason to stand on it. And there are lots of churches out there that are not standing on God's word. Lots of them out there. And then the quote-unquote Christian churches that don't believe God's word. 
I don't know how they can call themselves Christian churches when they're not following God and Christ, but they do. And they're going to make life miserable for those churches that want to hold on to God's word and say God's word is true. And this is going to be something we have to be ready for. We have to be ready for the persecution that will come. And note that I say will. I didn't say might. It is coming. If you're on the internet at all and you look at comments on anything that is a religious statement made, you see the hatred and the vitriol against Christians. We are not far from that coming out of the cyber world and becoming real. We need to prepare our hearts. We need to prepare our minds that we're going to suffer for Christ. And we want to be ready because it is going to come. It is coming. We need to be prepared. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come that you have told us that we are special. You created us to glorify you. We are not just accidents of, of science and, and accidental creations of the world. We are your top creation. Lord, if there's anyone who doesn't know you, we ask that you come into their life and, and bless them and give them your gospel, that you came to pay the price for our sin that we committed that causes death. And we thank you in your son's precious name. Amen.